0: to the BFox and BFrank show, we are now in January, college football is over, which means we had our first big Monday of the season, and it was actually big, and we started off with the the main event, Kansas-West Virginia, at West Virginia, and despite, you know, writing Kansas off, they went on the road, not only that, they're... In first place in the Big 12 once again at 5-1. and one.
1: The road continues to run through Lawrence if you want to win the Big 12 and uh, it's the same thing we've had every year where we worry about Kansas early and think maybe this is the year they give it up. Obviously they're only a third of the way through the schedule so there's still a lot left and there's still plenty of good teams but with some of the slip-ups we've seen here things have opened up a little for the Jayhawks.
0: Yeah, and we can add some qualifiers. As you said, only a third of the way through the conference schedule. There are four Big 12 teams in the top ten. There's plenty of talent. And you could argue that Kansas has been playing, you know, an easier part of the schedule. They've already had Kansas State and Iowa State, two quote-unquote lesser teams um, at home. So it'll get a lot tougher. But, I mean, starting off with this win at West Virginia – The toughest place to play in the Big 12 that is not Lawrence, Kansas. And, I mean, this this looks like a game, once again, that West Virginia was going to control throughout. They built up another big lead. West Virginia at home seems to be on a, a different level, just feeding off the crowd, controlling tempo. They can speed up a team like Virginia, slow down and frustrate a team like Oklahoma, and they've done that. Uh, to both teams this year, and they were doing that to Kansas in that first half. But once again, call it, you know, that feeling of having been there before, um, Bill Self just continuing to own Bob Huggins, whatever. But, I mean, Kansas adjusted, and this is one of the, the best wins in the country in the entire season.
1: Very impressive what they did, especially given that it was a double-digit game and felt out of hand for, I'd say, the good stretch of the middle part of the game from under 10 minutes left in the first half to about 13 minutes left in the second half. It felt like West Virginia was going to cruise, and then all of a sudden, Kansas starts hitting a couple jumpers, and the defense locks in, and you know West Virginia has some bad offensive possessions to the point where At the under-four timeout, they come out and Bob Huggins says, seniors make a play, I don't know what else to do. And that's where they were. I mean, it was an astounding turnaround, big win for Kansas, big confidence boost especially. This is a team that's lost twice at home already this season, which does not happen. Kansas does not lose at home. And to get this win was monumental not only for the fact that they're Alone at the top of the Big 12 right now but you feel like if they drop this game what else could they drop you know I mean granted West Virginia is a tough tough team to play but they've already shown vulnerability at home if you know West Virginia is not playing the best offensive game and they have a chance to win it if they let one slip it's a tough, tough one to swallow but they were able to close it out and then on West Virginia's side you just kind of got to look and see where's the offense going to come from
0: yeah, and that was, like you said, the thing Huggins was frustrated with not only in this game, but against Texas Tech, which was similarly a big blown lead in the second half. Always the problem with West Virginia, since they've gone to this system under Huggins, completely flipping on its head. What Beeline had built at West Virginia is where's the half-court offense going to come from? How do we generate offense on our own? Because most teams, when they play West Virginia right out of the gate, they're shell-shocked by the pressure, and they give up turnovers easy baskets for West Virginia usually gets off to a fast start. Then halftime happens, coaches make adjustments, and generally speaking, opponents are more settled in in the second half. Kansas certainly was. They were taking their time, breaking the pressure, which meant that West Virginia didn't have fast breaks every time. They had to actually generate something in the half court. And as good as Javon Carter is and as good as he's been, there are still times when he'll try to do too much, force shots, or he simply doesn't have any other real offensive help on the perimeter. Having Issa Mod on the inside back really helps. Um, he was big in both games, but it's it's not as much offense as you need for you know a, a team with aspirations as big as West Virginia.
1: Right, and that's the thing is we talked about it in the show that never was yesterday, but. <laughs> These are the teams you gotta worry about are the defensive minded teams where they get their offense based on their defense or they win their games based on just suffocating people because every team eventually needs to score. You know, they've gotta put points up some way or another. The defense isn't always gonna be there even for the best teams. And right now, if you're West Virginia, you're just kinda looking around saying, who is gonna be that guy?
0: Right, cause you don't wanna risk becoming like, Auto Porter era Georgetown losing to Dunk City, something like that, or you know West Virginia or sorry Virginia in the tournament every single year. Um, Though they might have a better team this year, who knows? We'll see in March. But that's that's exactly it. There are going to be times where you need a bucket late in the game, and they're basically pinning their hopes on Javon Carter being able to create that. And also hoping that they're gonna be able to generate enough offense on their own throughout the course of the game to even get to that point. And exactly. I mean, I don't think there's any question that they're a supremely talented team, but if they want to kind of break the, the West Virginia mold that's you know, gotten into the pattern the last few years of really struggling um, to even get out of the first weekend of the tournament, you know, something is gonna to have to change on that side of the ball.
1: For sure. and again, Press Virginia does shock teams, but when you know you're in big 12 play and people know what to expect, it's such a big difference. meaning or the only reason I'm bringing that up is the fact that it can be the point of you know West Virginia might lose five six games in the big 12, but they can still be a dangerous team in March because this isn't the style of play teams are used to often.
0: Right, and that's why so many things in the tournament are predicated on matchups and who's yes. yeah. who's in your your region. Um, and I mean, a lot of times that seems to work against West Virginia, like when they played Stephen F. Austin, a very fundamentally sound team that can handle the pressure. But and we'll we'll have to see how the rest of the season plays out for them. And I'm sure we'll be checking back in on the Big Twelve each and every week um, going over and talking about a, a team that I issued on the other side of the ball that we talked about last year. and that was Duke. Um, they got a big win Monday night at Miami, similar fashion, down big in the second half. We're able to get some buckets from probably the the least heralded this season member of their starting five, um, Gary Trent Jr., who is red hot from behind the arc, but Since we spoke, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, because I'm not going to pretend like too many people on the team listened, you know, Duke's actually been playing pretty good defense.
1: Yeah, and they won this game without Grayson Allen pretty much on the offensive end. I think he had five or six points. It was a game for the freshmen. Carter had 15, Bagley had 13, Duvall had 17, and he's really been struggling on offense shooting something like 10 percent from three which is astounding and then like you said Gary Trent was red hot and had a monster game but it's just continues to show the depth and the talent on this Duke team when they can put it all together and when they give an effort on the defensive end it's their light years better than a lot of teams on their best day and I think Miami is a top 15 team in the country and they just blew a massive lead and and ga- gave up what a twenty six to two run I think it was to to close that game.
0: Yeah, and Miami still at this point in the season seems like they're missing that signature win that cements them as you know, you know a top twelve, top ten team. They've had so many similar to their in close calls, right? And uh, Minnesota should have been a, a big win, but I mean the Gophers have have fallen apart at this point, but. Bigger for Duke, this was really their first road win. Um, yeah. I mean, not going to count Pittsburgh, but this is beating a, a quality opponent on the road, and that's – or, sorry, this is the first quality road win. They also beat Indiana, yes. but, I mean, <laughs> Indiana's still still pretty lousy, even though they're beating up on Big Ten teams. Uh, Duke needs to win games like this, and the freshmen already, a lot of it is just getting – so much experience and, you know, guys like Bagley and Carter on the interior, they're not playing like freshmen. There wasn't that adjustment period really for them. And, I mean, the, the last three games, holding Pitt to, you know, 52, really keeping Wake Forest in check and holding Miami to 70 is all the talent in their backcourt. They've now jumped up in Ken Palm's defensive efficiency from 108 to 72, which It's still lower than a team like Duke's ability should be, but that kind of jump in one week shows you the potential is absolutely there. It's all about just playing that way consistently against all competition.
1: And I think you hit an important point on Duke is that it's the big men this year. We're not used to this. We're used to them having these great guards that carry them throughout. I mean, since pretty much Christian Laettner, it's been their calling card is great guards that carry this team. Um, and they're freshmen, I get it, they're young guys that are still trying to learn, but when Grayson Allen has an off night, this is exactly what they need, and and they were able to get it. So I don't see Grayson Allen having too many bad games like that because that's just not who he is. He's that good of a player. But if they can get consistently, you know, double digits from a guy like Duvall, it's a big game changer because he distributes so well. If he can add a scoring touch, they're, they're all right.
0: Yeah, and that's another thing that's going to loom large in March is Allen's the only one with, with real experience there, so they're really going to be yeah. looking to him to, to lead them through that. But inevitably, somebody's going to take him away, and you're going to need another perimeter guy, either Strench or Duvall, to really step up. So the fact that they're already doing that against teams of Miami's caliber is, is a great sign. Right. And, I mean, we already we already had the uh, the Coach K medical issue out of the way. Yeah.
1: The it, game. They,
0: they managed to get a W, so I mean things are looking back up. This is, I mean, we've said this, I feel like every show. This is the the most or second most talented team in the country. They just they just have to play like it.
1: Exactly. And it kind of fits in with Michigan State because I think they're the yeah. other really yeah. talented team who just lost at home to Michigan of all play, of all teams. Um, that was just a weird one because it seemed like. It it felt more like in the first half Michigan State was letting Michigan hang around, and then in the second half it felt like Michigan was just letting Michigan State hang around. It never felt like one team or the other
0: pulled away when
1: they had control.
0: Yeah, it, Michigan State's different from Duke, um, not from a talent standpoint, but because they have so much depth. They can churn yeah. out you know two full units of high quality guys and. and you know, for whatever reason, as much uh top talent Duke has on the roster, they really don't go much deeper than seven, maybe eight guys um, in a rotation. But I mean Michigan State's just been struggling. Like they they can they can out talent anybody they play, certainly the big time, but they they just haven't been able to to get whatever it was that they had through their impressive streak after that Duke loss. They just haven't been able to to achieve that again. They're struggling against, you know, the the Rutgers of the world, they're going to overtime against them. And Michigan, we could be talking about them much differently if they didn't, A, blow a huge lead against Ohio State, and B, just completely forget how to play offense in the last two minutes against Purdue. They realistically should be undefeated in the Big Ten right now. Um, and they're, they're a team that, they're, they're probably the, the fourth out of four tournament team in the Big Ten. It's a classic B-line team. They're just going to shoot a bazillion threes and enough are going to go in to beat you. And it's incredibly frustrating, but it's it's the brand of basketball that's, that's worked his pretty much entire coaching career. They don't have as much talent as he's had on some other teams, but I mean, they're able to run his system to the degree of, you know, beating a team like Michigan State with relative ease.
1: And not to mention, they do have a home win against UCLA, whatever that's worth. But they still have some okay wins outside of the Big Ten. And like you said, this is a team that's a bad offensive stretch away from beating top five somehow, Purdue, and Ohio State, who's unbeaten in the Big Ten. So it's, it's very weird looking at the Big Ten because your team, Indiana, is sitting at 4-2 tied with Michigan State,
0: same place.
1: And no, Deron Davis for the rest of the season. Talent-wise, they're not even close. But I mean, one game separate, half a game separates the two. If Indiana plays before Michigan State does, you guys are ahead of them if you win. Well,
0: they're they're actually playing Michigan State on Friday <laughs> in their next game at Reslin, which is the uh, really which the only time known, they can... I can wrote it. <laughs> Yeah, really the only time I can remember uh Indiana winning at Breslin was the Cody Zeller nut punch game. Um, I mean, but other than that, that's been just a almost as difficult a place to win as Madison. Um, but, yeah, don't have high hopes for that game. But brief, brief Hoosiers talk, Jerron um, Davis injury, might – Might have helped because, A, it improves the team's free throw shooting just immensely. And that was a big part of why they beat Penn State is they're able to hit pretty much all their free throws in the second half. It allows John Morgan to play the five and really spread teams out. As as good as Davis is, he is kind of a a dinosaur in some respects as he's very limited with his mobility and can pretty much only play back to the basket and... A lot of teams, I mean, especially the Michigan game, for example, you know, teams are able to take advantage of that, pull them away from the basket, put him in an uncomfortable position. So, who knows? Still not a tournament team because you've got those two horrible losses to Indiana State and Fort Wayne, but it's good to have hope or something. For, sh- for sure. And,
1: like you said, Jaw Morgan's been playing really well. I mean, so surprisingly well to the point where no one's talking
0: about him. Yeah, I, I mean, he he should get some definite consideration for first team all big time. I think he's definitely the most improved player in the conference. A little bit out of necessity because who else did Indiana really have um, to lean in offensively? But, yeah, I mean, he's, he's flourishing in Archie's system. So that's a that's a good positive positive. Should he come back for his senior year? Which I don't see why he wouldn't. Right. Um, the the other, we're I mean we're basically a, a full week out from this, but just to touch on the other really big win um, for a team from last week is Villanova just thrashing Xavier um, between two of the best teams, not necessarily the two best teams in the Big East. Um, Eighty nine sixty five. Had to throw you a bone uh, and. This was another thing we talked about on the show that never was. We tried recording yesterday, but Jalen Brunson is the best, least talked about point guard in all of America.
1: Yes, easily. He's putting up just outrageous numbers, and he, like Trey Young, does make his teammates better because obviously Mikael Bridges is not who he is without Jalen Brunson, however, I don't think it's as big a drop-off for Bridges because I think he's that talented as it is for Oklahoma with Trey Young. But the numbers he's putting up are just so quietly good and dominant, for, especially in the Big East, that it's outrageous that he doesn't get talked about. And I understand that a guy like Bridges obviously will get the talk because he is significantly improved from last season to the point where they're talking about him as a lottery pick and you know, Phil Booth is back and had his biggest game of the year. You've finally got Omari Spellman playing. You've got Pascal playing. You've got Dante DiVincenzo off the bench. I mean, this is easily a seven deep team that is just outstanding all around. So what Brunson's doing is incredible, but just the beat down that Villanova put on Xavier was worrisome to say the least because I think – I will say I think Xavier is the second-best team in the Big East, and they're better than Seton Hall. So that is what has me worried because we, obviously we haven't played either team yet, and these are going to be two tough teams to play twice this season, at, at minimum twice.
0: Yeah, so good luck good with that. Um, but, yeah, know, Villanova, they're just – as you're alluding to, too many guys that you have to take away in order to limit them offensively. Um, and that's kind of the, there's a couple of schools of thought I could see people falling into with Brunson. You could argue, you know, it's it's less impressive what he's doing because he has such a good supporting cast, taking some pressure off him. But on the other hand, you could say, all right, well, there's there's technically a lot less room for him to quote-unquote get his with all the talent around him since so the fact that he's still putting up his numbers running the offense so smoothly to a point where it, a lot of times it just looks like a machine, that's even more impressive. And that's where I think both of us fall in. And what makes Villanova at this point, I would say, pretty unquestionably the best team in America.
1: Yeah, and if you look at his numbers from last year to this year, he's upped his scoring by almost four points a game with just like one and a half shots more a game. So it's not like he's a volume shooter at this point. He's just so damn efficient. And then he's cut down his turnovers pretty much uh, in half. So the things he's doing is just outrageous right now. And the fact that he doesn't get as much talk is pretty disappointing. He, he went from shooting 38% to 48% from three so far this season, which not an easy thing to do because if it was, everyone would be doing it right now.
0: Yep, that's, that's certainly true, and yeah, I mean, your boys at Seton Hall are still right in the thick of the, the conference title race, but as you said, have to go through Xavier and Villanova twice, so if they do end up Big East champs, they will certainly have to earn it. Yes. A lot of, a lot of season left, um, so that was last week, and one of the things I wanted to, to talk about we're springboarding ahead to kind of the week ahead. I guess we're midweek at this point, but whatever. Uh, there is basketball still being played out west, um, despite yes. what the Coastal Elites will tell you. Um, not very many slash good major conference teams for a variety of reasons. First of all, USC, huge, huge... Thanks. Stinks. Flaming disappointment. I, it just it just boggles the mind how that's even possible. Um, Arizona State came out of nowhere. They seem like they're crashing down just as quickly. Still not, you know, in, in total free fall mode. And say they they're about a top twenty team right now. Arizona has the best chance out of you know anyone in the Pac twelve to be very very good. They just need to. You know, consistently play that way and, and not lose to teams like Colorado. But I think now that they have their entire big three back, we're going to see them really shoot up in the rankings. Yep. But really that was all a prelude, um, as an excuse to talk about some teams out in the West Coast Conference and also Nevada. Um, but Gonzaga is a top 10 team, folks. Maybe not in the, the very biased Associated Press poll, but. And the poll that matters. And, and just displayed, you know, kind of stumbling their, uh, Thanksgiving tournament, dropping pair close ones to Georgia and Washington State. They are now 17 and 2, top 20 team on Ken Pond. Both of these teams dominating the West Coast again. They are playing, I guess when this comes out tonight, Thursday night, um, for first place in that conference. I mean, these are, Despite, you know, a lot of people not having to watch either of them, these two are the standard bears for basketball out west once again.
1: And honestly, I think it's a good thing. Like, obviously, having the big conferences, big, you know, big-name programs play well, like UCLA, will bring the eyes. But I think it's good for this brand of basketball and mid-major basketball especially Because so often you see people talk shit and say, oh, why would I want to watch a mid-major team when I can see the eighth-best team in the SEC make the tournament? Well, because these mid-major teams have had less chances and have done more with those fewer chances than, say, Vanderbilt last season, which was a significant argument, especially from the 27-win Illinois State team, that why not give these guys a shot when they're really – It's not their fault that they're in the conference they're in. So this is a whole whole rant essentially to say that we should be giving these mid-major schools a much better shake of it, and it all it all boils back to the college football playoff. I was literally just gonna say this. This is the same thing that happens with the group of five teams. They they don't get their fair shake regardless of the outcome of their season, and because of that we will never get to see how good these teams are. Because all you have to do, realistically, is give one team a shot. at Football, just maybe one team a shot once. Or in basketball, one team a shot every year. And if they don't do well for an you know, extended period of time, you can say, well, we gave them their shot. History has proven that, they're not, that it's not worth it, so why would we do it again? But these teams aren't getting the chances. And I think with St. Mary's and with Gonzaga playing well, the other teams in their conference, it, A, brings up, like, hey, don't you want to come beat these guys? And also, if they do win, it's, you know, a massive win for their program.
0: Yeah, I don't know if any win this season has aged better than Gonzaga absolutely throttling Ohio State by 27. Uh, and, I mean, I think basketball is a little different from football just because there are more opportunities to get wins, even though it is difficult for good, quote-unquote, mid-majors to get power six schools to schedule them. Um, That's a whole different thing. But, I mean, Gonzaga and St. Mary's are both tournament teams, and the rest of the season really will determine how they're seeded. And I think St. Mary's is going to be, as you are kind of saying, judged pretty unfairly, despite probably racking up, you know, 27, 28 wins by the time the season is over. So this is this is their big chance um, when they play Gonzaga. And they'll play Gonzaga twice, probably three times, assuming they both make the conference title game. And for Saint Mary's to go 0 and 3 in those games, that's really going to limit how the committee sees them on Selection Sunday, and will really put their ceiling at. You know, probably like a 7 seed or so.
1: Um, right. Which is dangerous it, for these yeah. other teams because you're getting an undervalued St. Mary's. It's kind of like, fuck, it's like uh, Gonzaga-Seton Hall a couple of years ago. Gonzaga came in as an 11 seed and just wiped yeah. the floor <laughs> with Seton Hall. And it's like, no shit, they have Kyle Wilcher and DeMontis Sabonis. What, like, this is not an 11 seed. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that was, that was an automatic sweet 16 Sharpie from the second-back yeah. bracket, at least because Utah just had no chance. Um, it's not uh, good memories. <laughs> uh, it but, also
1: helped that Whitehead put up the worst performance in NCAA yeah. tournament history.
0: Yeah, that, that usually won't help get the W for you. Um, but just looking at these two teams, obviously St. Mary's has Landale. That's the focal point of their team. Double-double machine in the middle going up against really a trio at this point for Kim Zaga, Jonathan Williams, still there from the almost title team last year, um, leading them in scoring one of six in double figures. Killing Tilly has taken the, the leap that so many thought was coming. Next great international player, Louis Hashimura, is is still making a lot of young mistakes, but ridiculously athletic, and he's going to be a good piece for them for years to come. Uh, I mean, five deep on the perimeter once again. So at St. Mary's, not a deep team. They have a very good starting five, but it will be difficult for them to to match Gonzaga's depth, and that ultimately will probably be the difference.
1: Yeah, it's it just comes down to Jock Landau. If he can get going, then St. Mary's will have a chance Otherwise, you know, you just have to slow up the Bulldogs and hope uh, the defense can take or can can make some stops against those guards. Zach Norvell would have been a huge, huge addition for Gonzaga last season. Obviously, things didn't work out, but he's playing well this year. And I, like you said, it's just guards galore for the Zags, and Killian Tilly has taken place in the paint and, and done what he's had to do. So... If St. Mary's wants to win, they need you know some sort of complementary piece to score for or next to Landale, and then he needs to go for at least twenty and ten.
0: Yeah, and the the other the other good team out west that uh, talked about a lot preseason kind of flown under the radar is Nevada. Um, couple of tough losses back to back and overtime to Texas Tech, CU um, two teams who you know turned out to be very very good. So. Yep. If you want to throw out the term statement loss, um, that's something. I know Nevada doesn't particularly care, but this is a team that's, that's pretty much shooting to be the Iowa State of, of mid-majors, just loading up with transfers. You've got the Martin brothers um, from NC State, Kendall Stevens, Purdue castoff, um, all three guys scoring in double figures. The Mountain West is definitely not what it was. Just a few years ago, when Anthony Bennett was a thing, and you know San Diego State was good every year, New Mexico was consistent, you know top four seed in the tournament. But Nevada is, you know, that good. They're a team that could and should definitely end up being, you know, like a five seed in this year's tournament, and they're not pretty much going to get any press. But the the amount of not only good players high-major-quality players on their roster, that's going to be trouble for, you know, whoever draws them in March.
1: Yeah, and just to talk about the conference as a whole real quick, it sucks that UNLV has fallen off like they have in Mountain West play. Uh, it feels like Malik Monk has been – or not Malik Monk, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fuck Malik Pope has been at San Diego State forever. I feel like we've been talking about his NBA-caliber play since 2009 and he's still there so I don't know what the hell is going on at San Diego State but there's also another good team like really good team in the Mountain West and it's Boise State Chandler Hutchinson's legit he's like a very solid NBA prospect and I think watching those two teams is going to be fun it's going to be the 1b to Gonzaga St. Mary's 1a in mid-major games but back to Nevada, like you said, built off of transfers. The Martin brothers are tearing it up, and Jordan Caroline's been awesome in the paint for them. So they're a fun team to watch, and when you get the chance, I don't know how many people have CBS Sportsnet, but that seems to be where they play a vast majority yep. of the time, with just god-awful announcing. But they're fun. They're a fun team to check out, so if you get the chance, please do. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um... So we'll see how that turns out over the, the course of the season. That and Mountain West is as good as Boise is. I still only think that is a, a one team, con- one bid conference, unless somebody else wins the tournament. And in that case, I think Nevada will probably have to end up being a little nervous, um, just based on precedent for a lot of these high win teams and in smaller conferences, as good as the Mountain West has been the last couple of years. That's right. just the unfortunate reality of the sport, which, as you said, should probably change sometime soon. But that's that's kind of what we're stuck with in present day. Um, the other big news that came out earlier today um, transfers, they're a thing. And grad transfers, when they were introduced, made it easier for for players to change schools really introduced in theory to allow players to pursue graduate degrees that weren't available at the school that they completed their undergraduate degree from a lot of guys moving programs, not having to sit out a year. and it's been very beneficial for players who have you know gotten more exposure and, and become better and you know the the teams they play for, certainly. Um, but now, College football and basketball players, NCAA officials today said 95% likely. You can see happening very soon. um, Players being able to just transfer while they're still an undergraduate, not having to sit out a year. The thing with this is almost immediately so many media members came out against it saying this will ruin college basketball. I'm racking my brain trying to to figure it out. So I need you to explain to me why is this a bad thing?
1: Because people hate change. That's it. That's all I can come up with. I've been thinking about it since we talked about it earlier. And all I can think of is people are so afraid of change that they don't want to do it. The only issue I could see is that mid-major schools would just get depleted. However, I think there's an argument that it should be a two-way street where if you can play right away and you're, you know, a former four-star recruit and you're not getting playing time at a power five, power six, excuse me, wow, that was a bad mistake. Uh, and uh, I need a minute. <laughs> um, on the and, if, and if, yeah, if you're not uh, getting playing time at a power six school, you if you can transfer right away to someone and be, they'll be like, hey, you can come here and play – you know, right away, step in play and you've got two years, why wouldn't you? I think, I and just, just to throw it out there, if they're really student athletes, students can transfer schools whenever they want and start up immediately. So why are we putting a limitation on them? I, right, see, I, I get like the NLI is like a contract and things like that. So I could see them deciding like, okay, you can't transfer to – these schools in conference or, say, if you do, you have to sit out a semester or something. But a full year just seems like a waste.
0: Yeah, and the the way it was introduced is you get basically one freebie. It's not like you're hopping every year. You get one freebie, undergrad, and then, of course, grad transfer option is still there. Um, But, I mean, the thing I would want to see is I'd want to see there, you know, not be those restrictions on – you know, which schools players can go to because you see, you see this happen far too often, like Bo Ryan trying to restrict where uh, Jared Utoff could go and so many other players. I just don't really think that's, that's fair to the, you know, 18, 19 year old kid as much as right. this, this system isn't in the first place. Um, so I'd say at, at bare minimum, if devil's advocate, if you're going to say, all right, this whole thing is bad, we shouldn't do it don't let people transfer don't give them the same freedoms as uh every other college students at the very least if if a coach leaves or is fired there's a coaching change for most players the majority sure. of the reason that they came to the school definitely should be allowed to, to transfer and play right away if they if they want to
1: right I, I agree completely with that point because I mean sure, the school might be a little bit of the reason, but for most of these guys, they are there because someone recruited them to be there. They built a relationship with a coach or coaches, and if they are fired or leave for whatever reason, why are you holding a kid hostage, essentially?
0: Yeah, and it, it's, it's already a system that's kind of set up and, and rigged in a way that's not with, The student athletes, um, say tongue in cheek, best interest at heart. And if you're, if you're coming out against this and you're, you know, saying we shouldn't have this, you're basically defending, you know, 80s, conferences, not even conferences, just 80s, school, athletic departments. I mean, not really things you could paint as the victim in anything regarding college athletics. These are, places and organizations that are and continue to profit off the players. So, I mean, if you want to have a, a freak out about players transferring and being able to, to play right away, just like coaches can leave every, time and, you know, just get right back into coaching making more money for doing that. At least you can sleep well at night, um, knowing that we're at least still not paying these athletes. Right. and, It's,
1: I mean, the whole thing of it is just ridiculous. There's no real way to put it. It's, they're kids. I mean, every people make mistakes, especially when you're 18, 19 years old, making such a, you know, huge decision in your life. I mean, I don't know the statistics off the top of my hand, but how many college kids transfer after their freshman year or first semester? It's got to be a significant amount, and... People, you know, your tastes change when you're 18 and 19 from year to year and things like that. So I I like the idea of just one because that's all you should really get. It should be one, and it's a big decision to make because one school invested time, money, resources in you. Yes, I get you're making it back for them. But the idea shouldn't be that you can just hop around year to year to year and try and go wherever. It should be a calculated decision. It shouldn't just be at a whim.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think this gives the the athletes freedom that they really don't have any of otherwise. So, I mean, I think it mm-hmm. it, it makes logical sense again because this is something coaches can do and actually do every single offseason. So, I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense why we're making players sit out a year for. Doing the exact same thing. But exactly. Apparently, that is a controversial opinion to present to any one of certain media people, Sharpie people. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's uh, that's where we're standing right now. Any any last words, college basketball related, before you you head off to see Seton Hall create an action? Uh, nothing. All right, we will see you next week.